Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Today we know that menstruation is a biological process in which the lining of the uterus is shed and that this occurrence is part of a regular menstrual cycle. We know that beginning one's menstrual cycle is part of the process of puberty for cis women, and we have a word for when it ceases, menopause. There's a great deal of scientific research and advice which helps us make sense of our cycles. But what about 500 years ago? How was menstruation understood in early modern England? Was it perceived and talked about by women and men in the same way? What was the relationship between menstruation and attitudes towards women? And how did women manage their monthly cycles, physically and mentally? To explore these questions, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Sarah Reed, Senior Lecturer in English from Loughborough University. Dr. Reed is a Fellow of the Royal Historical Society, as well as an organising member of the Women's Studies Group. She specialises in early modern culture, literature and medicine, with a specific focus on women's reproductive health. She's here today to talk about her book, Menstruation and the Female Body in Early Modern England, published by Palgrave in 2013. But I should also tell you, she has turned her research into fiction. Her second novel, The Midwife's Truth, the sequel to The Gossip's Choice, is published in April 2023. It's all about a midwife in the 1660s. And just before we begin, while I'm sure you do realise this, I will give a gentle word of warning that today's podcast will contain descriptions of and discussions about female blood loss. Dr. Reed, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. I am delighted to have you on the podcast and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I feel like it's going to tell us so much about women's lives in this period. Thank you for having me. Now, I know that early modern medical theory is based on the humours, the idea that you've got the four humours of blood, phlegm, black bile and yellow bile that you've got to keep in balance. So my first question is, what did people believe was happening physically in the female body during menstruation in the early modern period? So you're right that the humoral theory was the dominant idea that most people brought into. And for that to work, you needed to keep all your four humours broadly in balance. And the reason that women needed to have periods to lose some blood every month was because they were supposedly less active than men, so didn't use up all the blood that their bodies was making. So this goes back to ancient times and people like Galen were explaining this, you know, sort of millennia ago. So you've got people like Helkaya Crook who are saying that the reason women have periods is to spend all day sitting around embroidering, or as he termed it, pricking on a clout all day. So not using up all the blood that their bodies were consuming. 
whereas men were active and burning it off, basically. That was one model based on the humoral system, which was really the main one that people believed in. But they also had other theories about why menstruation happened. So one that came in the mid-17th century into the early 18th century, so it's quite a short-lived theory, but it was all to do with ferments, like in the brewing process. There was supposed to be a site in the female body where a ferment happened and then sort of on a cyclical basis, it reached a critical mass and then caused the blood to come away. But the theory rather fell down because nobody ever found the origins of this ferment, couldn't identify it, couldn't find it on postmortems or anything. So it sort of died away as an idea. So those were the main two. And then there were some people who clung on to the lunar theory, which is still going, isn't it? People still like to talk about that theory today. And that held that the moon was in control of the cycle. And while most early modern physicians, medical writers debunked this and said really you know, straightforward things like, well, if that was the case, then all women would have their period on the same day. Remnants of it held. So it was a widespread belief that younger women had their period at the time of the new moon and older women had theirs as the moon was waning. So bits hung on. There's a line in John Haywood's Play of the Weather when he talks about the old moon waning, means Catherine of Aragon. And I wonder if it is relating to the fact that I think that Catherine's gone through the menopause at that point. But we'll come to the menopause in due course. So according to these ideas, then men don't need to menstruate because they're more physically active. This feels like it falls down when we think about women working in the fields and such like at the time. How else did they explain men's lack of menstruation? Well, that was the main one. And they did notice that country women, you know, as a called women labourers, had less problems, lighter periods, because they obviously were burning up their excess blood. But also that ran over into things like easier childbirth and things like this, because their bodies were more active, whereas your higher ranking women tended to have more difficult labours because they were used to sitting around all day. And so you can see that there is a logic behind this sort of idea. But generally, yeah, men's bodies are hotter and more vital than women's in the humoral model anyway. As you know, women's bodies are supposed to be colder and wetter than men's and have a propensity to build up fluid anyway. The beginning of menstruation for a young woman, known as the menarche, was a highly significant event in early modern society, wasn't it? Why was it? Mm. I mean, it's not marked by any rituals like you have in some cultures, which are, you know, I still think is a bit of a shame, really. But it did mean a transition from being a girl into being a young woman. And therefore, you know, in the eyes of the church, for instance, you were marriageable. But it tends to be the case that this sort of was an extended period of adolescence we're finding out more and more about now, whereas some high ranking young couples in arranged marriages, very young and in their early teens, most people didn't actually get married until their mid 20s, ordinary people. And that meant that they would become financially stable by that point. So there is some idea that from Menarche around 12 to 14 to marriageable age for the average person, there was a period of about 10 years of unbroken menstrual cycles, which I think is really interesting as well, because the persistent belief that women didn't have many periods back then, and that we've got this sort of 10 year block where in all likelihood, she would be having very regular cycles. Yes, that is interesting. Was there any kind of detrimental effect on a girl's status if menstruation came on late? 
Yeah, you would have lots of concerns within families. So you see that there's quite a few surviving letters from fathers writing to physicians because lots of diagnostics seem to have been done by letter in this era. And it's interesting that a lot of these letters come from dads worried that their daughters haven't gone through all the typical processes in the right time scale. And so once you get to about 16, you'll find that there's a flurry of correspondence sometimes and then comes back with all sorts of hints and tips and things that you could do to encourage the menarche to, to take place. Things like having the girl be let blood from her ankle so that it would draw the blood down for the body. It was thought pointless to do it anywhere higher than the waist because you want to encourage the blood out and down, not up. So yeah, you do see that sort of concern if it looks like it's very delayed. So is there a sense in which it's considered optimal health to have regular bloodletting and you've got to encourage it in this case if it's late. So what does that mean for women who experienced irregular menstruation or no menstruation at all or was very heavy menstruation regarded as unhealthy? If a woman experienced any of these difficulties, what could she expect to do? Yeah, so that's one of the really interesting things about menstrual periods at this time is because the primary purpose was thought to be to balance the humours. So it was a huge concern for people if, you know, periods were excessive in their flow, also if they were irregular or, or non-existent. And so lots of medical investigations, treatments, things like emetics, things like enemas would often be employed and bloodletting again from the leg to try and get the body kick-started, if you like. So to sort of show the way, because one of the things that menstrual blood was thought to do was to bring out other corruptions and unnecessary waste with it. So it wasn't that, you know, that there was anything necessarily wrong with the blood, although some people thought there was. It was doing a cleansing job, if you like, getting rid of what we'd call toxins. And so it needed to happen. So there was concern, yeah, and it would be normal for a woman who wasn't experiencing regular periods to have bloodlet and various other medical interventions to try and get into a regular pattern. Were those toxins purely physical and to do with health or did they have a kind of moral context as well? I think they were mainly physical and they would call it corruption, <laughs> not toxins, that's our word. But yeah, it was thought to be a conduit for getting sort of things that you didn't need in your body out. So they are mainly physical, yeah. Okay. I just wanted to ask then, this is fascinating, if this is the conception of menstruation as being about maintaining that balance, what then is the connection between the cessation of menstruation during pregnancy? How do people understand that at the time? Well, because the baby was eating the blood, basically, that was its nourishment. That's where the baby was growing and getting its energy from. This is a brilliant idea, though. This is <laughs> absolutely fascinating. So the idea was that the baby in utero fed and was nourished from menstrual blood. That's why you didn't have any periods. So the reason they explained that quite a lot of women have spotting or light periods in early pregnancy still, which didn't result in a miscarriage or anything, it's quite normal, was because obviously the fetus was tiny, so it didn't need it all. So it had to come out. And so as a baby grew, it was nourished on the menstrual blood, meaning you didn't have periods when you were pregnant. And then after birth, the menstrual blood went to the breast and converted into breast milk. And that's why lactating mothers don't have periods as well because it was being used in another way. Oh, it's such a brilliantly well worked out system. So is there a sense then that they could perfectly expect in the first few months of pregnancy, a woman to still have periods potentially if the baby's very, very small? 
how clear is the line, in other words, between menstruation coming to a stop and pregnancy in their minds? Yeah, it's not at all clear in the way that it is, you know, for us now, we've got these highly reactive tests, something that you can do even the day before your period's expected and things like that. It's much more nuanced in the early modern period. A missed period isn't the prime indicator of pregnancy at this time. So, for example, Jane Sharp, who published a midwife's book in 1671, she's got a list of about nine signs of pregnancy. And a missed period is only about number six on her list. And it comes below things like sour belching as a symptom that, you know, you might look for for signs that you'd conceived because they knew lots of things could stop a period happening. What I found in my research was that they tended to be ordinary, everyday people would look for a missed period as the first sign of conception. But medical writers were very keen to show that menstruation had a much bigger context for the body. So if you think about, for example, Samuel Pepys's diary, it actually opens in 1660 with his wife's late period coming on and dashing their hopes that they were going to have a baby, which they obviously longed for. He writes about it quite a lot in the diaries. I get the sense that for people in the streets, that would be the first tangible sign that they'd conceived. Whereas for medical people, they're saying, oh, you've got to look at the bigger picture of everything that's going on in your body. And therefore, they wouldn't be too worried about either light periods happening for the first few months or spotting, as we probably talk about it now. That's very interesting. I was struck by, in your book, the idea that medical men lamented that women didn't keep a record of their cycle and so didn't always know if they were pregnant until they felt the quickening of the baby, the movement. And it felt to me to be echoed in the recent proliferation of cycle monitoring apps, this sort of tendency towards data gathering as opposed to a woman's embodied intuitive sense. And so it seems to me that you're suggesting that there's a gap between women's kind of biological attunement and what medical men are saying about menstruation at this time. That's what it seems to me anyway, from reading lots and lots of diaries and letters and things in the period, that that's what men and women are looking out for. I suppose because it's more tangible than the other signs. You know, one of Jane Sharp's signs is that your tummy's a bit flatter than normal because the uterus has sucked in the seed and taking it internally to keep it nice and warm and safe. Well, I mean, how tangible is that? Does your tummy look a little bit flatter than it did last week? How can you tell? And things like, you know, are you burping a lot unpleasantly? They're not as concrete, are they, as if you've missed your period and then you've got something to hang on to, I think, in that case. But your physician's not going to be all that interested in have you missed your period because it's just one of the things that they're going to be looking out for to assess the whole picture. If I'm following it correctly, the logic of humoral theory would suggest that when women experienced the menopause, they became healthier because they're now not imbalanced in terms of blood. They became drier, they became more masculine almost. And yet we know that it's often older women who are accused of witchcraft, for example, which has been related to the fact they're no longer fertile. So how are postmenopausal women perceived? Yeah, I mean, ageing generally in the early modern period is a process of drying out and becoming less vital. So, you know, as you become shorter on the humoral front overall, that's how ageing happens. And there's been some very interesting theories about why women, postmenopausal women, have been sort of accused of witchcraft. And a lot of the sort of stereotypical pictures you see of women are of postmenopausal sort of bristles on your chin and things that happen. Again, that's quite a masculine thing, isn't it? But also the concave mouth that comes from ageing and that therefore your nose looks hooked because you've lost some teeth and things like that. But a lot of those are just 
aging signs and postmenopausal women throughout time have been founts of knowledge about medical cures and herbal remedies that have been passed down through generations. The village wise woman is the most accessible person you can go to if you need a herbal remedy because Hippocrates, physicians, surgeons, midwives all charge. And so you, know, you can see therefore why suspicion would fall on older women at the slightest cause. I had never thought that the hook nose of the witch was because of losing teeth. That makes so much sense. And perhaps particularly is the case from sort of late 16th, early 17th century onwards, when people are now having access to sugar and therefore more likely to lose teeth than they would have done a century earlier. Did females experience menarche and menstruation and menopause at different ages than women today? And how do we know? <laughs> yeah, so most of the information about how we know these medical books, which were copious you know, after the mid-16th century when the printing presses took off and produced so many books, and often they're reinterpretations from another, and all of them are drawing on ancient medicine rediscovered in the Renaissance and adding their contemporaneous opinions and practical knowledge into the mix and sort of varying it like that. But most of the information comes from printed medical books. And there they agree that 12 to 14 is the normal age for menarche to appear. And that's tied up with ideas about climactic ages, you know, 7, 14, 21. And therefore, it seems normal if you're interested in the seven ages being key crisis points in the body, that 49 would be an age that was typical for the menopause, a cessation of the menses as it tended to be called. They didn't have the word menopause. But yeah, so the late 40s was thought to be typical for that. Again, only the other day, somebody said, oh, I've got a character in one of my novels who falls pregnant about 42. It's a bit of a surprise. They sort of said, oh, no idea that women were still having periods then. But according to the medical books, they were. And according to personal letters, I've got letters between husbands and wives still hoping, particularly if they've been having children over an extended period and they've perhaps lost an adult child, an heir is needed. They're still hoping that they might still have that window of fertility and, and have another boy. And we know there is indeed a rise in fertility before menopause starts. So what advice was available for women in these medical books about menstruation? And were the books aimed specifically at women? Were any of them by women? Some of them were aimed at women. Mostly physicians' books are sort of men talking to each other with the idea of teaching the next generation of physicians and things like that. But there are some books that were known to be read by ordinary people. So, for example, from 1540, The Birth of Mankind, otherwise named The Woman's Book by various translators including Thomas Reynold. And the subtitle, I think, gives the clue away. The woman's book, it was meant to be read within families. And it's even got a warning in there that says something like, yes, the contents of this book might be considered salacious by some impure people, but that's not the intention of them. And you should read them for information and knowledge, not any lewd content. So it's got like a content warning, if you like, and a moral warning on them. And in 1671, so 130 or so years later, Jane Sharp makes the same comment in the midwife's book, which she's written specifically for her sister midwives to be a training document for up and coming midwives, she says. And she draws on her 30 years experience, she says in the introduction to write this book. But it's very much drawn from the same sorts of sources as the male authored midwifery books. But so there is proof, at least in those two texts, that the general public were going to read them. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. March 2023 marks 20 years since the start of the Iraq War. The war was waged to rid the world of a brutal dictator, yet it would end marred in controversy. So why did the Iraq War go so badly wrong? And what legacies has it left behind today? Well, I'm your host, James Patton Rogers, and every Monday on the Warfare Podcast from History Hit, we're exploring a different aspect of this tumultuous period in history. We'll be asking, what was the role of the UK government and Prime Minister Tony Blair? Could the Secretary of State legally order British forces into Iraq, and could British forces follow that law? And how did ISIS rise from the destruction left behind? But ISIS, this peculiar strain that we all came to to know very well in the the mid-2010s, really got its start because of the US invasion of Iraq. Join me, James Patton Rogers, on the Warfare podcast from History Hit as we look back on one of the most controversial conflicts in recent history. your research given you any idea where else women might look for advice on matters of administration if they were in difficulty and from whom did they turn to perhaps the local village cunning woman or perhaps more sort of male physicians well i think there's a class factor involved in that isn't it physicians were very expensive to go to but people did, and as I say, often by correspondence. But one of the best sources we've got for how women looked after their menstrual health is the recipe books that survived the receipt books and the welcome of digitised so many, haven't they, in the family recipe books. And in there, there's so many different recipes for overflowing courses, for pains associated with periods and things like that. So I think, you know, women would have conversations with other women and perhaps go and look up in a family book of recipes if they were a literate family. Otherwise, it's oral knowledge. It's passing on ideas about which herbs will help. Penny Royal, for example, is well known for bringing on periods and that would have been very common knowledge in this time frame. So a lot of it was just sort of knowledge that existed within the community of women. There's a story from 16th century France in the archives that I've looked at from the consistory of Montauban, which is in the south of France. And so this is a Protestant consistory. And there's a record of a woman who goes to her surgeon to ask him for medicine to bring on menstruation. She's actually like about seven months pregnant. And so he refuses and she's pregnant outside of marriage. But that is interesting to know that the sort of thing she might have been asking for is pennyware. Two thirds of the cures or something like that in Culpepper's herbal can be used as menagogues for bringing on menstruation. So 
there's such a variety of things that people would have been able to find something if they wanted to do that and did. And Jane Sharp mentions in her book that, you know, these are things that you can use to bring on a period if your period's late and, you know, and you're worried about your humours being unbalanced, but don't do it if you think you might be pregnant because that's murder. But it's very knowing, isn't it, that sentence? Absolutely. And we must talk about the practical aspect of all this. How did they manage monthly bleeding? They often seem to have red petticoats at this time. Women's wheels, for example, they bequeath red petticoats. Did they use their underskirts to disguise menstrual bleeds or will they have other methods? Things like the padded petticoat and an appropriate coloured one does the job. But people also do mention cloths, which they call clouts. Everything was a clout, isn't it? A household cloth, so from a dish clout, you name it. So it's linen that's reached the end of the life and can't be recycled into anything else. It can't be cut down into a smaller shirt if it was a man's shirt to a child's shirt. We've reached the end of that cycle. and <laughs> We're at the literal rag stage and then they use for any household purposes. But women quite often would have a set of clouts that they kept for menstrual protection and they sometimes call them the double clout because you would fold them over a couple of times and then they could be tucked in your girdle most women wore a girdle of some sort just a belt around the waist or they could be just scrunched between the legs there's there's some evidence of that and there's one proposition that I found came from a court case in the Old Bailey actually where it mentioned flour just normal cooking flour was sprinkled between the clouts which I think is quite ingenious as a way of sort of making them more absorbent so I think people were doing all sorts of things but I think for the average everyday person and this is certainly true up until the 20th century when sanitary protection became disposable and manufactured a lot of ordinary women just didn't you know, they just got on with their lives and mopped themselves up as best they could. And those rags presumably would need to be washed and reused for as long as possible. Absolutely, until they literally fell apart and then they would be burnt. So people didn't tend to use internal sanitary protection either because it was, again, we're going back to the humoral model and wanting to get excess humans out of the body. Pooling them within the body was thought to be quite unhelpful and unhealthy. So there is some, I mean, there's a poem by Rochester, a crude poem where he talks about Phyllis, the sex worker he's sleeping with, and she's using a sponge. And of course, that means she's available for work all around the month, doesn't it? Because she's not going to bleed when men want to buy her services. But I just can't imagine that being used more broadly in the population because of this overriding need to get humours out of the body. Can we talk about language? Because today there are all sorts of words, all sorts of slang that's used to describe menstruation as well as medical language. So how was it described in early modern society? It's fascinating that aspect because when I first started researching it, I used to think, well, these are euphemisms. And then I came to think, no, they're not. They're just what people called them. You know, people weren't using the language euphemistically in the sense of they wanted to disguise what they were talking about. It was just ordinary everyday language. So the most common word for periods was you were having your flowers or she's having her flowers. And that comes all the way back from a horticultural base You see it across Europe. And so it's not a corruption of the Latin word for flow, as some people posited at the time. It is actually this horticultural language that without flowers, there can be no fruit, because if you didn't have a period, you couldn't conceive. And that's really the most widely used term. And then after that, you get things that refer to the regularity, so courses or terms, and then the sorts of words that we have come to use like period has got its origin in the early modern period because doctors would write about the menstrual period and they meant the days that you were flowing for but you can see how that eventually became shortened to period and menstruation again it happened as a term in the early modern era from menses or monthly yeah so it's part of that kind of inkhorn introduction of latin into english the elite physicians are using latin quite a lot at the start of our period and by the end 
there's a sort of seems to be a sense that oh that's a little bit common now there's a shift to greek wholesale you see medical textbooks make a language shift and then you see quite a lot of late 17th century into the 18th century physicians writing about catamini which is the same term but just from the greek how interesting so that's a difference in terms of gender how people are speaking about it is the differences in terms of rank and religious belief as well yeah i think they're quite formal i mean i've not really found people talking in letters and diaries in a really overt way so you might get an aristocratic woman writing to another one about how she hasn't done any visits recently and that is sort of couching the language in sort of euphemistic terms. But the formal language the church used, for example, is always menstrual and they use it in a really reductive way to sort of compare humans' righteousness is as low as a menstrual clout, like the worst thing you can imagine. And that comes directly from the Bible and you see it in sermons, you see it being talked about in this era. So is there a sense of uncleanliness to do with having one's period at this time? There is. It's a very sort of strange position. On the one hand, it's a very normal part of life. You know, we're living in an era in which there's a very different attitude to privacy than the one that we have now, where shared chamber pots are the norm in households, and also in which not having a period was seen as a health issue that needed to be addressed. So you've got that sitting alongside the Bible talking about uncleanliness, about menstrual clouts being the lowest of the low. So you've got this sort of tension all the time. So it's not as though it's taboo, but it's just this tension between it being routine and ordinary and also a bit unclean. And that sort of expands into things like the churching of women after they've had a baby, which still goes on into the 18th century, where after the woman stopped bleeding following childbirth. So after she's had her woman's month and she's taken things easy for a month before she would resume everyday life, she would go through this religious ceremony in the church, which changed quite a lot in and out of fashion, where as the changed in the church right from the Henrican Reformation to up to the Civil War era. At some point you could get fined as a woman for going to church to be churched without wearing a veil and another decade later you'd be fined for going in a veil, you know, according to what was in fashion at that moment. But that churching process still was important for quite a lot of people. And again, it all comes back to Eve and Eve's original sin. So you've even got some physicians like James Martin in the early 18th century wrote, if Eve had never sinned, she wouldn't have had to suffer the shame of seeing herself defiled monthly with this blood, which was a reminder of Eve's sin. Thinking about how people spoke about menstruation, you mentioned Samuel Pepys writing in his diary about his wife's monthly cycle, and obviously that had a particular purpose. But a number of your sources are men like him doing that. Are there other reasons that men are keeping this record, do you think? They do keep this record for mainly for procreation purposes. So there are a few men, yeah, who mark their menstrual periods for their wives in their diaries and keep a trap from that sort of point of view. And you also have recovered some letters between a mother and her son over a series of months in which she's discussing problems that her periods are causing, you know, feeling sick and having cramps and that sort of thing, and even sharing with him that her periods are particularly heavy. Does this give you a sense that menstruation is pretty openly discussed in families at this time? Well, I think that's exceptional. I think their relationship is exceptional. So we're talking about Lady Brilliana Harley and her son, who's at university in Oxford and variously working during the Civil War years. She died in 16. 43 of a siege of a castle that she was defending during one of the early wars in the civil wars their correspondence is incredibly frank and they're obviously very close and again she doesn't talk about it in oblique terms it needs a little bit of unpicking but I suspect she was in her early 40s I think she was probably perimenopausal you know we don't want to impose our norms on people in history 
But to me, it seems the most logical way of thinking what's happening to her. So she just seemed to have these problems. And they have this exchange where he seems to be urging her to see a doctor. And she says to him, you know, well, yeah, but I don't ever know exactly when I'm going to need the doctor. Can't have one hanging around for a few days every month, giving me cordials and diuretics and emetics when I'm going to need them. But she does seek to reassure him. Another source that you've looked at particularly are plays and poems. And many of them in your book seem to have parodied menstruation. Could you perhaps share a couple of examples and also tell me why you think men did this? Is it just simply, you know, patriarchal society or is there something more complex we need to think about? Yeah, and I think, you know, when we come back to the Earl of Rochester and his bawdy poems, I'm sure that what he's up to is shock value. Because the church forbade intercourse during menstruation as being an unclean thing because of the fact that the menstrual blood could be corrupt and, you know, it might even cause you to get cancer of the penis if you weren't careful. So, you know, as well as being sinful, it was also unhealthy. So they got a double whammy going on around that. So it was outlawed. So to talk about, as Rochester does, having sex with a sex worker during her courses, it has got this really risque shock value to it. So he writes two or three poems along that theme. And these ideas about menstrual blood being able to corrupt do seem to have overspilt into society. So John Evelyn writes to his son on the eve of his marriage, you know, to say that obviously you're going to consummate the marriage, but make sure that you only have sex when it's appropriate. And certainly not around that time, because the signs will transfer onto the child and everybody will know that's what you'll be doing. So your child might be born with leprous marks or birthmarks, which will tell everybody what their parents were up to. So I think that largely it's to do with shock value. Now, in your book, you are surveying 250 years of history. So I want to ask you to finish a couple of questions about how we think about change over time and how we think about it over geography. Are there any notable changes in gynecological understanding or advice or attitudes in this 250 years? Well, one of the reasons I could take on such a big time period was because of the consistencies of the humoral model. So having come down from Hippocrates and Galen to the early moderns, it prevails and it's sort of going out of popularity from the 18th century. But it's still the way that most people understand their bodies. And so it's still dominant. And that meant that because of the consistencies, you could just look at everything through the sort of humoral lens. And I mentioned earlier about the ferment theory coming into play in the mid 17th century into the early 18th century. So people were coming up with new ideas. And sometimes people sought to marry the two. So you have people who are writing primarily from a humoral basis who would talk about the ferment theory and explain how it worked humorally and took it all neatly together. So things were mainly consistent and didn't mean that people weren't looking to find causes. So there were empirics who were doing post-mortems and discovering that things that Galen had said about the womb having lots of chambers in it, for example, was nonsense and would write and debunk that. Other theories that had come down from the ancients, like the wandering womb, that the idea that the womb could go about the female body and cause mayhem and cause the woman to feel like she was choking and suffocating as it was up against the diaphragm, were modified through this period. So they weren't debunked wholesale. But things like people like Culpepper writing about how the fallopian tubes would act as sort of ligaments and tethers. And yes, the womb could move about a bit, but it couldn't go all that way up. So people were thinking about these theories. They weren't repeating them verbatim. They were applying their own sensibilities to them, things that they found out in their own practice and modifying. And that's one of the interesting things to look at over the years and to see these little shifts as they happen. That is so fascinating. And finally, did your research give you any indication if the attitudes to and experiences around menstruation with regard to early modern England were typical, such a difficult question to understand, but typical of those 
across Europe more generally? Well, I think they probably were because most of the medical books derive from a range of pan-European sources. So the midwife's book and the birth of mankind in the 1540s is published in at least seven different European languages. And the version that we have in England from 1540 is a translation from a Latin source. The Latin source isn't the original. The original was in German. And so you think, well, if a lot of these sources are drawing on doctors from, say, Leiden and places like that, there just seem to be some commonality and some pan-European aspect to what they're saying. I said that was the last question, but I do have one more. Because given that you've now turned your research into fiction, it seems to me that everything we've talked about today is really important in terms of thinking about women's experience at this time. How did you find that knowing this material informed your writing of historical fiction? That's a good one. I think it informed everything that I did. So I drew a lot on Jane Sharp's 1671 book for my remedies, for the procedural aspects of giving birth, because she goes through things like that in quite a lot of detail. But I also used the case notes of a midwife who published them in 1737, Sarah Stone. And she worked in the Somerset area mainly. Or she just go to London for a spell, and then she goes back. So she's in the Bridgewater area. And as I say, in the early 18th century, she publishes a set of 40-odd case notes. And these case notes, you couldn't sort of write a whole novel based on her case notes because she only records the dramatic episodes. So they're not representative of her career in which she'd worked. Again, like Jane Sharp, she'd worked for 30-odd years. She trained from a mother who was also the local midwife. And she delivered hundreds and hundreds of babies. She says at one stage in Taunton, she delivered 300 a year. So she's a very busy lady. But these 40-odd case notices are the really things where things have gone wrong, but she was able to intervene and save the day, if you like. But that meant I'd got a really rich resource for making my stories realistic because they were based on the case notes of somebody who was writing at the time. I can't wait to read them. Sound like lots and lots of fun. Thank you so much for sharing with us these interesting, really fascinating insights into women's experience. There's been many moments where I've thought, oh, gosh, I didn't know that at all. And that has really clarified something for me. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. You're welcome. And thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, my researcher, Esther Arnott, and Stuart Beckwith, who edited this episode. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.